think God's got something really cool for us this morning. So if you have your Bibles, you can turn to Acts chapter 19 is where we're going to be at this morning. We're going to pick back up in Acts. You know, we did uh, several weeks while we were kind of in a transition time, doing some different things while we were at Northside and kind of moving back and forth. We did the seven feasts, seven Jewish feasts, and what those things were the significance of them uh, in the Old Testament and how they apply to us in the, in the uh, New Testament here today. And then we're going to jump back into Acts. You know, we, were, uh, we wanted to be very committed to the book of Acts because for us, our biggest desire, you know, when we set out to start a church uh, in a town when by most, uh, most suggestions were, you're crazy and absolutely do not, um, we knew that we didn't want to just be another church. We wanted to be a true New Testament church. Let's look at that. And so that's what we wanted to step into when we looked at the book of Acts. We wanted to be a true New Testament church, and we wanted to allow us as a church to navigate that, to see the beginning of the church, what they were passionate about, what motivated them, uh, who were they reaching out for, what, what was the barriers and the struggles that they went through. And we have seen all those things that we've moved to this point here this morning. But I think in God has just spoken to me in huge ways in this scripture. And, um, you know, I've, I've preached this text before and God's just done an awesome work in my own mind. And I pray this morning that I can convey half of the passion that is in this text and allow it to speak to us and allow it to mold us into this type of church this morning. And so this morning, as we pick up in Acts 19, what we're going to see is we're going to see the church of Ephesus be born, okay? And the thing about the church of Ephesus, we've kind of talked about this a little bit before, we know more about the church of Ephesus than we do of any other church because there's more written about the church of Ephesus, uh, more clearly, more detailed, because we have Ephesians, okay? We have the book of Ephesians. Then we have the books of First and Second Timothy, who Timothy was an elder at the church of Ephesus. Then we have First, Second, Third John, and John was an elder at the church of Ephesus. And then we also have Revelation 2, where we kind of see where the church of Ephesus was, and we'll get to that as we get to the end of our uh, time together this morning. But what we see is we see a church developed, okay? We see this church developed, and what we'll see is Paul's development uh, had him overcome a couple things, and those things were idols, and those things were imitations, okay? And I don't know about you, but, but an imitation isn't anywhere near the experience or the gratification or satisfaction of the original. Right. Uh, I know I talk about junk food a lot, um, probably because I'm a junk food just fanatic and we don't buy junk food that much. So it's like that thing that you want really bad that you never have type thing. And uh, me and my wife were talking about it last night, how I'm probably the most unhealthy, thin person on the face of the planet. Um, but in that, you know, I use a lot of junk food illustrations, but uh, just talking about the real thing, right? The real thing, the difference between the real thing and the imitation. And um, Brother Garen used to always make fun of me because a lot of things that we would buy, we would buy the off-brand of those things, right? Um, and, it, and it's interesting that, uh, that how, how that looks, okay, and how that imitates, tries to imitate the real thing. Like, for instance, uh, I'm an Oreo freak. We've talked about that before. Um, but very, more often than I have Oreos, I have twist and shouts, right? Y'all know about those twist and shouts? Okay. Or if you're getting really desperate, if you, if you get really desperate, you get crunchy circles, okay? <laughs> It's weird that the more of an imitation it is, uh, the less creative they get with the name, right? It's just crunchy circles, crunchy brown circles, right? Uh, or you get you got Fruit Loops, you got Fruit Loops, or you have silly circles, 
right? Silly circles, they tried. You know, just slight variations, right? Uh, you got Lucky Charms and you got Marshmallow Magic. I don't know, Marshmallow Magic sounds pretty sweet, though. I just like that name. Then you have Cocoa Pebbles and Cocoa Nuggets. They didn't go very far off of that. I don't know what the difference between a pebble and a nugget is, but they're stretching that out, okay? Twinkies or Golden Creamies. You know, they got all these imitations, and even though the imitation, okay, the, the off-brand, the imitation of that may be more affordable, it may not cost me quite as much, I don't know about you, but the experience is not the same. Okay, and so as we kind of move into the Bible here, and as we get a little more biblical, the imitations just aren't the same. And so when Paul steps into this area here in Ephesus, he wants to help pull them out of imitations and idols that have just become the cornerstone of their civilization, of their culture. Okay, this place, Ephesus, is famous, and we'll kind of talk about it a little bit as we get into the text. This place is famous for the temple of Artemis. Okay, this is one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. It was this massive building. I actually have a picture. Jude, if you could pick it, I think it's the next picture after the, the welcome thing. There it is right there. This is a picture of that structure. I mean, can you imagine something like that existing in the ancient world? 127 pillars. These pillars being 60 feet high. Now all that stands of it is one pillar about this tall. But this was the, the central place of Ephesus. Okay, in this place, the temple of Artemis, Artemis was this Greek goddess of fertility. Okay, she was this Greek goddess of fertility, and along with that, this worship of Artemis came a lot of uh, lustful, adulterous things that they would do, and so their culture was centered around this. Also, this place was the center point of their commerce. This, is a, this was also a treasury and a bank. Okay, this is where their money was. This is where merchants, kings, and cities would deposit their money. So not only did we see at the center of their culture was this lustful worship, but it was also money. Do you see where I'm going with this? Do you see what was at the center of their culture is not much different than what's at the center of our culture today. And so what Paul does, what I love about Paul, is whenever he steps into a place like this, and all leading up to this point, when we've seen Paul step into Corinth and all these other places, Lystra and all these places, the first thing he attacks is the idols of the culture. He attacks the idols of the culture because Paul understood that the idols are the barriers to real faith. This morning, our tithe, the title of our message is Fake Idols and Real Faith. Fake idols and real faith because I could have preached two messages out of this, but this morning uh, we're going to talk about a real faith because that's what Paul wanted them to see. That's what Paul wanted them to grasp a hold of. Paul's desire for Ephesus was to educate and establish real faith by overcoming imitations and idols to be able to walk in the confidence and power that he called them to and that he calls us to, God calls us to today. To walk in the power and the confidence of real faith. And we see here in, in Acts later on that the idols were such a big deal to these people. Okay, This was such, such a central point of their culture. And I'm just going to read this really quick. You don't have to turn there. But their culture was built around it. Even to the point later on, Okay, later on into Acts 19, we see the people that are making money off the idols of the culture begin to complain and come against Paul. Okay, in, t in 23, I'm just going to read these verses to you real quick so you get an idea of the gravity and the weight of the idols in these people's lives. 
Okay? It says that there arose no little disturbance concerning the way. This is the work against the gospel. It says, for a man named Demetrius, a silversmith who made silver shrines, okay? He made silver shrines of Artemis, brought no little business to the craftsmen. It says, these he gathered together with the, uh, with the workmen in similar trades and said, men, you know that from this business we have our wealth. Listen, the world profits off of our idols, okay? The world profits off of our idols. When you attack the idols, you attack the culture, you attack the profit of the world, okay? The money that they made. And they, they're complaining about Paul here. They say Paul has persuaded and turned away people, saying that gods made with hands are not gods. So Paul stepped in and attacked their idols to help them see real faith. He attacked their idols. And then later on, their commitment to this not much different than the world's commitment against us to make us worship the idols that provide the profit that they live on. It says that, continuing on down in verse 34, it says, but when they recognized that he was a Jew, it says, for about two hours they all cried out with one voice, great as Artemis of the Ephesians. For two hours straight they yelled about the idols that they worshipped. And, then, and they wanted that, not because they wanted the people to just be so confident and happy in their lives, because they knew that if people worshipped the idols, they would profit. Okay? And so, before we move into the bulk of the message this morning, I just want us to know that idols are the barrier to real faith, and idols don't do anything for us. Okay? An idol is something that we worship. An idol is something that we seek after to seek a satisfaction that God can provide. But we're looking to this idol for satisfaction and fulfillment and, and, and purpose and worth and value. And that's what Paul attacks because what he wants from us, for us to see, and what he wanted from the church of Ephesus to see is that their fulfillment, satisfaction, worth, and value would never come from the idols. Okay, Paul attacks their idols because they're the barrier to real faith. So what we're going to speak on this morning is real faith. What we see as we move through this, this text, um, starting in verse 11, is that we see this situation, this awesome situation, begin to reveal to us what it looks like to have real faith, gain real faith, and live and walk in real faith for Jesus. So the first thing this morning that I want us to see is that real faith, a forever faith, doesn't happen by accident but it must be taught. So our first point this morning is real teaching about Jesus. Okay? Real teaching about Jesus brings real faith. Okay? Starting, we're actually going to start in verse 2, and we're going to see as if Paul is introduced to the, the church, the, the small portion of believers here in Ephesus. He says, And he said to them, Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And they said, No. They said, We have not even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. Verse 3, And he said, into what then were you baptized? And they said, into John's baptism. Verse 4, And Paul said, John baptized with the baptism of repentance, telling the people to believe in the one who was to come after him. That is Jesus. That is Jesus. What Paul sees here is he comes to this group of believers that their confidence is resting in a work that John did. 
You remember John the Baptist here in the beginning of the New Testament in the Gospels. Remember, he was paving the way for Jesus. And what they were resting in is, is they were resting in that. Okay, They were resting their confidence in God and their confidence in their faith in this religious act. And they were missing out on the purpose of it. Okay, They were missing out on what the true purpose for it was. They were resting in the directions rather than embracing the destination. Okay, They were embracing the directions. And what John did, he was pointing them to Jesus, but they were resting in this religious act. Okay, And religious acts in themselves, baptism of John was not a bad thing, but when that thing is the weight at which you put everything on, you miss Jesus. Listen, coming to church, praying, reading your Bible, worshiping, all those things are not bad things, but if we're doing those things separate from Jesus, then we're missing it then we're missing it and it's faulty ground that will fall short because unless it's focused and moving towards Jesus, we're missing the point. We're missing the point. So that's what Paul, it says here that he begins to teach on. Paul helped them understand John's, the, John's baptism was a catalyst for the work of Jesus and what he was going to do in the hearts of people. And Paul spent time teaching real faith is about real teaching on Jesus. In verse 8 it says this, it says, And he entered the synagogue and for three months spoke boldly, reasoning and persuading them about the kingdom of God. Before this it says it was 12 men. John spent three months with 12 men teaching them about who Jesus was. That's commitment. Because he wanted them to know who the real Jesus was. He wanted them to know what he could do in their lives. And it says that he was reasoning with them. This word reasoning means that he was talking through or discussing. He was answering questions. He didn't just lay it out there and say, take it or leave it. He said, no, what are your questions? What are your doubts? Tell me what it is that you're thinking. He was reasoning with them. And not only was he reasoning with them, the Bible says that he was persuading them. So not only was he discussing it, but he was making a case for it. He was inviting them into it. So he wasn't just informing them on who Jesus was. He was telling them about who Jesus was, answering their questions and doubts that they had, and inviting them into it. Church, as we minister to our community, as we minister to each other, I pray that we can have the patience that Paul had. That he would spend 12 months, I mean three months, and we'll see even more time, three months with 12 men to help them see the truth. Church, the thing that I hate about us sometimes is we put timelines on people and their, their relationship with the Lord. You should believe in this time. You should believe right now. You should have everything figured out right now instead of having patience and reasoning and persuading and reaching into people's lives and helping them understand who the real Jesus is through real teaching. That's what He's called us to do. And then continuing on in verse 10. He says, and this continued for two years so that all the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. For two more years. And this is after opposition. If you read right before this, it said some people within the group actually came against Paul and he still stayed. Church, he still stayed. This is the very reason against all suggestion that we stayed here in De Quincey. We, we had all plans to leave. We had all plans to go do something else. But I love Paul's commitment and his patience when he said, so that all the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. That even after resistance, he stayed two more years. 
with the people. And it'll say that he was reasoning with them. He continued to talk through this with them. He was patient with them. Regardless of their place in life, regardless of their race, regardless of their status, he reached out to them. Jews and Greeks, completely different people that hated each other. He said, these are the people that I'm being patient with, that I'm reaching out to, that I'm talking to. I love Paul's patience and and, and persistence. Because Paul knew that there were people that admired Jesus, but they weren't relying on Jesus. And sometimes that takes time to help people understand why they need Jesus. I pray we would be patient with people. I pray that we would be persistent with people. I pray that we would be reasoning and inviting people into that to help people know that Jesus is more than someone to be admired, but He's someone to be relied on because He can provide. And that's where God moves at, churches. And, and I love this in the midst of this opposition. I've said before, where there's opposition, there's opportunity. Okay, where there's opposition, there's opportunity. And revival always comes with rivals. Okay, where a work against God, where a work of God is happening, there's going to be a work against it. And we have to be ready for that as the church. That's why we continue to teach real teaching about a real Jesus. More than imitations, more than idols. That's what Paul was committed to. And not only was he committed to that, but our second thing this morning, that Paul was committed to teaching about a real power from a real provider. He wanted them to know a real Jesus so that they would know a real power that would really provide for them more than their idols, more than their money, more than their time, more than their kids, more than their families, but a real Jesus that would provide for them. Continuing on, we're going to pick up in verse 11. We're going to see this situation play out. In verse 11, it said, And God was doing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul, so that even handkerchiefs or aprons that had touched his skin were carried away to the sick, and their diseases left them, and the evil spirits came out of them. Then some of the itinerant Jewish exorcists undertook to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus over those who had evil spirits, saying, I adjure you by the Jesus whom Paul proclaims. I love this in verse 11, that it says not only was it by the hands of Paul, that God was using a broken man like Paul, but it says that even handkerchiefs and aprons that had touched his skin were carried away to the sick and their diseases left them. Now you have to understand, there was no power of Paul himself. Paul is a man. Paul has no power in himself. This is the power of God working through Paul, and not only working through Paul, but working through the things that he had. What I love about our God is that God takes ordinary, otherwise useless, or unexceptional things to accomplish the miraculous and extraordinary. God was using aprons and handkerchiefs, things meant to be dirty. Things meant to be discarded. Things meant to be washed over and over and over and over and over again to bring healing to people. Church, God can use anything to do a work. God can use you. God can use us. God can work through us because the power is not in me. The power is in God. The power is in a real provider in Jesus. Because what's amazing about our God is that our God repurposes for His purpose through His power. Church, God can use things. God can use 
aprons and handkerchiefs meant to be filthy and dirty for the work that He has to do to bring healing and restoration. He can use us. He can use us. 2 Corinthians 12.9 says, Paul talking, he says, But he said to me, My grace is sufficient for you. Talking about what Jesus said. For my power is made perfect in weakness. And Paul responds, Therefore I will boast all the more gladly of my weakness so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Church, if we can acknowledge where we are weak and we are powerless without a powerful provider in Jesus, God can use us. If we will let it rest in us, rest on us, allow Him to use us, God will repurpose us for His purposes. God wants to use us, church. Because listen, idols and imitations will not do the deed. And we'll see that play out as these itinerant Jewish exorcists are trying to use the power of God separate from the power of God. Verse 13, he says that these men undertook to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus over, the, over those who had evil spirits, saying, I adjure you by the Jesus whom Paul proclaims. He says that these seven sons of a Jewish high priest named Sceva were doing this. That they undertook to invoke the name of Jesus. Okay, they were attempting. They were attempting to use the power without the presence. Okay, they were attempting to use the power without the presence of God. They were attempting to invoke Jesus without ever inviting him in to be their source of power and provision against a real enemy. They were wanting the work of Jesus in their life without walking with Jesus in their life. Because the, the reality of life, the reality of sin, the reality of struggle, the reality of brokenness of our world is that when we're facing a real enemy, imitation faith will f- always fall short and fail. Fake faith is not a forever faith. We can't pretend forever. We can't pretend forever to rely on Jesus because the moment we face a real enemy in our life will be the moment it lets us down and we fail and we fall short And we'll be defeated. We'll see this play out as we continue on. But pretending has no power, church. Pretending has no power. And we see that here in verse 15. Read this with me and see this play out. But the evil spirit answered them, Jesus I know. Paul I recognize. But who are you? You know, I would imagine in an exorcism that that's the moment when you know things are about to go terribly wrong. The moment when you know this isn't going to be good. If they're talking back to me, talking down to me, this isn't going to play out well. That's a terrifying moment to imagine these men. Maybe these things worked before. Maybe them, you know, trying to cast out demons out of people isn't a terrible thing. They were trying to do good for people, even if it was for selfish gain. But they came to this moment where all the faking, where all the pretending faced a real enemy. That it's a terrifying moment that is caught up with them. Because the demon says, he says, Jesus, I know. Paul, I recognize. But who are you? You know, I don't know about you, you know, uh, and the only thing I can think about relating this to is like sports. You know, whenever I, whenever I played sports, I knew my enemy, right? I knew the opponent on the other team that posed a threat to me. 
You know, I knew the big dude that I'm going to have to hit low because if I try to tackle him high, he's going to run over me. Okay, I knew that pitcher that if I got up, up to bat and he was pitching, that uh, I better be ready because he's blowing them by. Okay, I was never that guy. Okay, people weren't like, hey, y'all know that Jake Rainwater? He has, that's a crazy dude. Like, he's going to kill. I wasn't ever that guy. All right, I wasn't that guy. But I knew my enemy. I knew the guy that, that would oppose me. I knew the guy that, that was a potential threat to my victory. The enemy knows its enemy. Okay, the Bible says that the demons tremble at his name. Okay, they know Jesus. They know Jesus because Jesus can defeat them. Okay, they know those who are identified with Jesus because they have the power of Jesus because that'll defeat them. They know he's a threat. And whenever we're in Christ, when we have a real faith, we're, 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 giving ourselves over and believing in a real provider for real power, we are identified with Jesus. And that power rests in us to face those things. 1 Corinthians 6.17 says, He who is joined to the Lord is one spirit with Him. 2 Timothy 2.19 says, The Lord knows those who are His. Psalm 46.1 says, God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Imitation may carry you for a season, but it will eventually let you fall. Church, fake faith will not carry us. We can't pretend. We can't come sit in these nice little uh, bench tables that fold up into pews and pretend like we worship and believe and rest in Jesus when we really don't. Because the moment we face a real enemy, the moment we face a real power against us in our life is the moment that we see that it will fail us and let us down. Pretending has no power. In the face of our sin... I don't know about you, but I I hope that you can be honest with yourself in this moment and think about sin that overtakes you. Think about sin that comes against you. In the face of our sin, in the face of our enemies, in our private and public life, it is a startling revelation to discover you are powerless on your own. That's a tough place for us to be, to a place where we're powerless on our own. And to fight those battles in our own power will lead to an overwhelming defeat. And we see that in this text as we continue to move on. Picking up in verse 16. So right before this, the demon says, Jesus I know, Paul I recognize, but who are you? Verse 16, it said, And the man in whom the evil spirit was in the evil spirit leapt on them, mastered all of them, and overpowered them so that they fled out of that house naked and wounded. I don't know about you, but there's no doubt in a scuffle or a fight, that when you leave naked, you've been beat, right? If you've gotten the pants beat off of you, you've lost the fight. No no question. That fight is over. You've lost the fight. And it says that this demon leapt on them. It grabbed a hold of them. Okay, It attached itself to them. Listen, when we face sin in our own power, when we face our struggles in our own power, that sin attaches itself to us in the way of a thought, in the way of habits. It latches itself to us in a way that we can't pull it off in our own strength. When we face those things on our own, they will attach themselves to us. And it said that it mastered them. 
It mastered them. And this word gives the idea of being consumed every part of them, that it controlled them, that it dictated their actions and the results. Listen, they had no master, so the master of their life, there was a vacancy. There was a job opening for the master of their life. And so whenever they faced this enemy, this enemy quickly attached itself to them and mastered them. Church, when we face sin on our own, it not only attaches itself to us, but it will begin to master us. It will begin to dictate our actions. It will begin to dictate our results. It will begin to dictate our outcomes. It will begin to dictate the way we treat our kids, our wives, our families, uh, our, our, our do, manage, our, do our jobs, uh, do, come to church. It will dictate the way we think and sleep. It will dictate everything about what we do because we're facing that sin in our own power and it is mastering us. And then it says that it overpowered them. And this means simply that it defeated them. It could also mean that it wielded a power stronger than them. Fighting sin and circumstances in our own strength leaves us defeated. It leaves us hopeless. And it leaves us in a pit so deep that we don't feel like we can ever get out. It makes us feel like there's no way I'll ever be able to get out of this. And then we begin to allow the sin to define us. This sin is who I am. This sin is what I do. This sin is how I live. Because it's attached itself to me, it's mastered me, and it's defeated me. And if I continue to face these things in my own strength, I'll continue to go through this same process of attachment, mastering, defeat. Attachment, mastering, defeat. Every time I find myself, maybe I can get away from the enemy for a moment, but the moment that I come back and I face him, he's going to attach himself to me. He's going to master me. He's going to defeat me. And I'm going to leave naked and wounded, busted and broken, defeated and hopeless, that there's no way I'm coming out of this. That this word naked means that they were left bare, open, and susceptible to further injury. Listen, when we are defeated by our sin and defeated by our circumstances, how do you feel? You feel vulnerable. You feel like you're, you're just broken open and that everything else that comes in is going to be a, a potential injury to apply to you. And not only were they susceptible to injury, and not only were they humiliated, because our sin humiliates us, right? Especially when it comes from private to public. You know, whenever it's made known, we're humiliated. For them, they were left humiliated. And not only humiliated, but they were wounded. They would have scars that they would carry around. They would have things that they would carry around for the rest of their life. Injuries to carry away with. But the beautiful thing is that God lays out God lays out the steps to overcome that. Because when we hear and we rest in real teaching about a real Jesus, and we begin to put our faith in a real provider for real power to face these things, the invitation, the third thing this morning and the last thing, is a real faith that is found in vulnerability, real honesty. That's how we overcome these things. That's how we overcome these things. And picking up in verse 17. It says, And this became known to all the residents of Ephesus, both Jews and Greeks, and fear fell upon them all. And the name of the Lord Jesus was extolled. 
Also, many of those who were now believers came confessing and divulging their practices. And the number of those who had practiced magic arts brought their books together. They burned them in the sight of all and they counted the value of them and found it came to 50,000 pieces of silver. So the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. This word confessing right here. It says that they came proclaiming God and praising Him. This word confessing means to proclaim and praise. And they came divulging. This word divulge means reporting. They were making known their sin. The Bible says here that they were believers. That they were believers. That they were people that Paul had had interactions with before. And that they came as believers confessing that there were things in their life that they had not quite broken from. That there were still things that they were holding on to. That they had not made a clean break of some of those practices that they had before they were believers. But because of God's power, because of this, this culture of honesty that Paul had created, they had the confidence to step up and seeing a work of God, this respect, this fear of God. They came forward and they said, I'm still struggling with this. I've still been doing this. They came and they brought it forward. What a beautiful moment whenever people can be honest about the things they're struggling with in the dark. You know, we've talked about it a lot. One of the, the best ways to defeat, defeat the things that are overcoming us is to drag them violently out of the darkness and throw them into the light. Let them be seen. Be vulnerable. Let yourself be seen as weak that you are being defeated by something. That's the only way we can start to fight it. Not in my own strength, but the strength that God has. But the problem is, the problem is, and I'll admit it, I'll admit it because I've been a part of it. The problem is, is that churches teach people more about looking perfect than we do about seeking the perfect one. We don't allow space for grace. We say come as you are, but what we really, we really mean is come as you should be. Instead of in this situation, I love it that Paul stepped into their situation. He taught them about their idols. Helped them break down those walls. He taught them what it was like to believe in a real Jesus. They became believers. And in this moment, we see that there was still sin that they were struggling with. There were still things in their life that they were dealing with. But Paul didn't tell them, hey, you make sure you get all that figured out before you come into my presence, before you come into to, to worship here, before you come, become and call yourself a disciple or believer, make sure you get all that cleaned up. But that's not what happened. Luke, uh, Dr. Luke here in Acts calls them believers. Earlier on, he calls them disciples. These were people who had put their trust in God. These were people who had put their faith in God. But, but they, had still, they were still giving themselves over to the idols of the culture, the imitations of power and provision. They were still putting their faith in them, but because of a work of God that they were allowed to be a part of and see, they had the confidence to come and be honest. I'm still struggling with these things. Church, we should be a people teaching people where to run instead of how to run, even if they're limping. Allow space for grace because that's what God did for us. That's what God did for us because God had bigger plans than punishment. God had bigger plans than punishment. And I always think about Genesis 3. That in the very beginning, you know, whenever God you know, created this garden, He created this space, and He, he brought, put Adam and Eve in it. And He told him, He said, eat of, eat of everything you want except this one tree. 
You know, and then we know how that story played out. They ate of that one tree, and then the other one ate, and then, then, then they realized they were naked, and they hid. And then God comes into the garden, and He says, where are you? God knew where they were at. But He knew that they had given themselves over to sin. And, and, and in my mind, I think, God, why didn't you start over then? You know, later on, He would start over. But God, why didn't you start over then? God, why didn't you just wipe every, why didn't you just wipe the slate clean and say, okay, well, let's get a new Adam and Eve. These failed. Let's do two more. He could have, we, we want to think that the, the grand punishment was them leaving the garden. They deserved death. And what did God do in Genesis 3? It said He clothed them, He fed them, and He sent them out. God could have punished them. God could have just wiped them out and started over clean, but God had bigger plans, and that was Jesus. That was Jesus. What we as a church have to be careful of. Not that sin is not wrong. We, I'm, hear me now. I'm not telling you that that is justification for living in a life of rebellion and sin. That is absolutely not what I'm talking about. But what I'm talking about is us as a church, God developing the church of Ephesus to be a church that is not telling people to clean up their act before they come. He's telling them to come and let God do that work. Because otherwise, we're teaching a doctrine, we're teaching a work of church, a legalistic view of church called externalism or moralism, where everything is about how you look and how you act rather than who your identity is in. You know, it's in be a good person, have a good week, do your best, shape up, don't cuss, don't smoke, don't drink. Be better at this and that. And then we find ourselves feeling like, I don't know if I want that, and I don't know if I can even do that. Because we're facing those things in our own power. We're facing those things in our own power. You know, as it, it, we're called by churches to do Christian stuff that I don't know why and I don't know how. You know, uh, Pastor Alistair Bragg, he's a church, of a, a, a church in Cleveland, uh, Parkside Church. He had this illustration. He said, if I was asked to paint a Van Gogh, could I paint like that? No, I could not. If I was asked to write like William Shakespeare, I could not. If I was asked to write a song like Paul McCartney, I could not do it. And then a lot of times in church, we command people to live like Jesus, separate from knowing Jesus, and I can't do it. I can't live like Jesus on my own. I can't walk like Jesus in my own strength and my own power. But if the very essence of William Shakespeare lived in me, I could write like Shakespeare. If the very essence of Van Gogh lived in me, I could paint a picture like Van Gogh. If the very essence of Paul McCartney lived in me, I could write a song like Paul McCartney. If the very essence of Jesus lives in me, then I can walk like Jesus, but not in my own strength, in the power and the strength of Jesus. That's where it comes from. The identity is the key to the activity. We can't have the activity before the identity. That's not how it works because our power comes from the identity. We have to know Jesus, believe in Jesus, and rest in Jesus before we expect our activity to match that. And we as a church have to allow the space for people to experience that because anything else is externalism or moralism. And that is not the gospel. 
This quote by St. Cyril of Jerusalem, he said this, he said, Your accumulated offenses do not surpass the multitude of God's graces. Your wounds do not surpass the great physician's skill. I love this, that they overcame personal pride and cultural norms in a moment of vulnerability and honesty to be able to share, I'm still struggling and I'm putting my faith and my confidence in Jesus. Now, what I admire about them is that they stopped playing the victim. Okay, They did something about it. And for us, we should recognize the things that draw us back into our idols, draw us back into our sin. And then us as a church create a culture where people can come and bring those things and begin to move and take steps towards growth and provision and power. But they stopped playing the victim with the sin that they were struggling with. And so that's my I hope for us as a church that we can be a place of, of vulnerability and honesty, but that also as individuals that we can be honest with ourselves and be able to say that I'm struggling and not play the victim. Not play, well, this is just what I deal with and this is the sin that's in my life and I, I'm just going to be a victim of it for the rest of my life. No, if we're playing the victim, we don't know the victor. Okay, if we're living as a victim, we don't know the victor. Jesus is the victor. And when Jesus lives in us, we don't have to play the victim anymore. God did not create us to be helpless. God did not create us to be helpless. God did not create us to give ourselves over to sin and idolatry constantly and let it defeat me. God created us to rest in the power of Jesus to overcome those things. That's what God's done for us. And it's through vulnerability to find that love for God and find that love for people. C.S. Lewis said this, to love at all is to be vulnerable. Church, to be real. Stop putting on a show. Stop trying to pretend like your life's perfect or you've got it all together. And church should not be the place where you have to be that way. This should be the place where you can be vulnerable. Because this is the only place where we can work through those things together. And in this honest culture, this church was built on that. It was built on this honesty. This was what you learn about the church of Ephesus. This was a doctrinally sound church. They sought doctrinal purity perfectly. And they sought love and concern for one another and honesty and vulnerability. And to finish up this morning, the challenge for us is to reclaim that real faith. Maybe you've never known it. I pray that you would look at the sin and circumstances in your life and know that there's no way you'll ever overcome those things unless you put your faith in the power of the provider, and that's Jesus. Or maybe you've moved away from that. Maybe you, you have put your faith in Him, but you've moved away from Him. You feel distant from the Lord. I pray this morning that my challenge for you is to reclaim your real faith, that we would go about reclaiming real faith in our life. Resting in that as I am a father, as you are a father, a mother, a son, a daughter, an employee, as you live life, that you would live it in real faith, in real power, with real vulnerability, understanding you do not have to be perfect and are expected to be perfect, but that we rely on the perfect one to carry us through. And we see, as John writes in Revelation, we see his encouragement to the people of Ephesus on how to reclaim their real faith. So if you could, turn your Bible to Revelation 2 as we finish up this morning. Really quick and then we'll be done, guys. I pray that this would be a challenge to us as we reclaim real faith in our life. Just to kind of lay the groundwork 
for how the church of Ephesus is seen. It says, I know your works, your toil, and your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and have found them to be false. Remember, I told you they fought for doctrinal purity, biblical purity of just knowing the truth. They wanted that. They fought for that. They strove for that. And they're being commended for that. He says, I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake. This is God talking and you have not grown weary. But, he says, I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love that you had at first. And we just talked about that love that they had at first. They had that love for God. They had that love for each other, allowing space for grace to be vulnerable, to work through things. That love for God and that love for people that they had in the beginning. He said that they've lost that love. And this is His command to them, to reclaim your faith. And I pray that this would be your challenge this morning. That you would remember, therefore, where you have fallen, repent. That word repent means to change direction. To stop playing the victim and start resting in the victor. And change direction. Okay, remember where you've come from. Remember who Jesus is. Remember what He's done. Remember what He's doing. Remember what He wants to do. Remember that. And then He says, do the works you did at first. Do the works you did at first. What did they do at first, church? They were honest about their struggles. They were vulnerable. They were resting not in the power of their idols and the imitators, but they were resting in the provider in Jesus as their Savior. Because He's the only thing, church, He's the only thing that is going to make this church make any impact in this community. Otherwise, this is just a hot, sweaty building that we're in right now for no reason and for no purpose. But if everything we do is for and because of Him, we will see broken people be restored. We'll see relationships restored. We will see people motivated and moved by, 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 by value and purpose in their life. We will see amazing things, not by our power, but by the power of God. And so I pray this morning in reclaiming your faith, your real faith this morning, I challenge you to be prayer as we sing. I'm going to ask the band to come up, and we're just going to sing through the chorus of Good, Good Father as we just uh, pray out to Him and, 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 and praise Him for His perfect ways and how good He is. That we would rest in His provision. That we would remember. We would remember who He is. That we would do the work we first did, that we would, like, the, like he's challenging them, to be honest. Church, I pray that you would be honest about sin that you struggle with in the dark and drag it out into the light. I'm not saying you have to stand in front of this mic and tell everyone. But begin to face it in the strength of God. Pray, God, show me what I need to do. God, show me how I can overcome this in you, not in me. God, show me how I can be a better Father, show, show, show me how I can be a better mother. Show me how I can be a better provider spiritually. And stop resting in the idols that the world puts in front of me. Stop resting in the idols that the world, the culture around me tells me I need to depend on. Lord, help me to see that I don't have to depend on money or anything else to find satisfaction and purpose in my life. I pray this morning that you would that you would reclaim real faith, and that would be in Jesus, not in anything else. 
Church, I'm going to ask you to stand, and I'm going to pray for us really quick. I just want to encourage you to just sing with us. So we just praise God for His goodness this morning. And that you know that music stops, doors close, whatever. Please feel free and open and honest to come and talk to to me, uh, Brother Garrett, or someone else that you feel have some confidence in. That you would not walk through. I always I tell my patients and their families, don't suffer in silence. If you've got something going on, share it with someone. Speaking something out, bringing it before the group like they did. The, the church at Ephesus, they brought these things. They burned these things. They got rid of them. And the phrasing there actually insinuates that they kept coming, that they kept confessing, that they kept divulging, that this isn't a one and done. This is a keep coming, keep going, keep repenting, keep, keep being honest. So I pray this morning that you, you would just reclaim real faith in that way through resting in the power of a real Jesus and being truly vulnerable before each other and before God. Let us pray this morning. God, I thank You. God, I thank You that we can just... Lord, we can rest in a power so much greater than ourselves. God, that we can rest in a provision beyond our own. God, that I thank You that, that my strength as a father, as a husband, as a provider is not in myself. God, but it's by resting in You. God, a good father, a perfect father. That You say that if our earthly dads take care of us and love us, how much more do You love us and take care of us? God, I pray that we would stop resting in imitations and idols. But God, start resting in a real faith of a real Jesus with a real power through real honesty and vulnerability, God. Let us see you for who you are. God, let us rest in you for all you can do for us, God. God, I pray that we would ask for forgiveness this morning. God, I pray that we would change our direction and begin to be confidently pursuing you in all that you do. God, we love you and we thank you and we praise you. In Jesus' name. Good, good father to you.